Let's open our Bibles to the book of Colossians. Colossians, the first chapter. This magnificent portion of Scripture. Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15 through verse 20. Let's bow before the Lord in prayer before reading this grand passage of Scripture. Our Father, we have confessed, I believe, in the Holy Spirit. And so we do. And we ask that the Holy Spirit, who has given this book by divine inspiration, will now work in hearts. You know every heart. You know that there are some here who are lost and have not trusted in you. We pray that they will be enabled by your sovereign grace, granted saving faith, that they may leave here redeemed people. We pray that you will bless those who are brokenhearted, those who have great need within the heart or sickness and body, frailty. We pray that you would bless that your people who need to grow in holiness of life will do so this morning. And we pray for those people, whoever they may be, who are holding back something they need to give up to you. And we pray that Christ's preeminence will have the preeminence in each of our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Colossians 1, beginning with verse 15. This is the Word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. People of God, Christmas is about the immeasurable condescension of the Son of God to save us from our sins. We simply have no way of fully comprehending this condescension. There is great value for Christians to dwell on such lofty matters. Our lives are ennobled as we dwell on these high and wonderful truths. And they are fundamental, absolutely indispensable, and foundational. This truth of the incarnation of our Lord. Children, incarnate means enfleshment. God assuming flesh, coming in human nature. Now a word about the reason for this letter before we begin to expound this section. Paul is concerned about this church that has been planted by Epaphras. It's in danger of being carried away by false teachings. Matter of fact, in chapter 2, verse 8, just as an example, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So the apostle is very concerned, because there is a syncretistic philosophy that attempts to combine certain elements of the Christian faith with humanism, and the characteristics are these. This this is not original with me, but uh, this is fairly common in the study of the book. 
these heretics had an exclusive spirit, developing a spiritual caste system. They had speculative tenets on creation and on angels and ethical implications leading either to rigid asceticism on the one hand or to license, unrestrained license on the other. So later on, this develops in the history of the church as a heresy called Gnosticism, and already in the New Testament in various books, but especially here in Colossians, you find that there is this incipient Gnosticism, this heresy in seed form already at work, and the apostle is deeply concerned. How much of the New Testament, by the way, is written to refute error? Oh, the church is still in danger when she strays from the word of God, and the heretics thought that Christ was not enough. Imagine that. They thought that Christ was insufficient. That always is the hallmark of heresy. In some way or another, saying that Christ is not enough. And nothing is more important than this. Who is Christ? What did he come to do? Why was he able to accomplish what he accomplished? Who is this who was born of a virgin? And in these verses 15 through 20, by the way, if we were preaching through this book, undoubtedly, we would preach a number of sermons from this passage. It's deserving of many expositions, and we can only do the broad sweep this morning. But in these verses, probably a hymn that was sung in the ancient church, we find many things about Christ that will help us to appreciate this season of the year even more deeply. The first thing that I want to point out from this passage is that this text teaches us that Christ is God, the creator, and the sustainer of creation. Christ is God, the creator, and the sustainer of creation. So we read in verses 15 and 16, He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So we are told in verse 15 that he is, Christ is the image of the invisible God. The word icon, from which we derive our word icon. No definite article for you Greek scholars out there expressing quality. One resource of Greek New Testament study has this to say about this word. In Greek thought, an image shares in reality what it represents. Christ is the perfect likeness of God. The word contains the idea of representation and manifestation. The word points to his revealing the Father and to his pre-existence. And that's absolutely the meaning of the word in this context. God in his essence cannot be seen. You remember that we're told that in many places. For example, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16, uh, that he alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. But when the Son becomes incarnate because He is the image of God, the very image of God, you see God. He said to Philip, uh, He who has seen me has seen the Father. We read in John 1.18, No one has ever seen God at any time. God only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, 
He has declared him. That's the Lord Jesus in his incarnation. A.T. Robertson says beautifully, Jesus is the very stamp of God the Father as he was before the incarnation and is now. Now, what the Apostle Paul is saying is this, that the Lord Jesus Christ shares in the essence of the Godhead, the essence of the Father, that he is not only a representation and manifestation, but what that means in all of its fullness, that the Lord Jesus Christ is very God of very God. And in verse 15 we read on, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And the word firstborn here does not mean that, uh, that Christ was created. It has nothing to do with that whatsoever. The firstborn over all creation, by the way, once again, no definite article expressing quality. It means preexistence. It's a word that means uniqueness. It means that he holds sway over creation. It means priority and sovereignty over the whole created order. So priority and dominion over every created thing is contained in that expression, the firstborn over all creation. And then in verse 16, we're given a bold-faced statement that Christ is the creator, for by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. All things, by the way, verses 16, 17, and 18 stress all things. He is the creator of the thrones, the highest order of angels, dominations, authorities, spiritual hierarchies. If in some sense these Gnostic heretics are emphasizing this angelic hierarchy, he's the creator of the angelic hierarchy. Matter did not create itself, neither do angelic spirits create themselves. He's the creator of the entire universe. And since he is before all things, then he cannot be a creature. John 1.3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Bishop Ellicott speaks so eloquently when he says, Christ is the creative center of all things, the causal element of their existence. You know the hymn, Creator of the Stars of Night, Creator of the Stars of Night, Thy people's everlasting light. O Christ, Thou Savior of us all, we pray Thee hear us when we call. And indeed He is the creator of the stars of night and everything else that the text teaches us. Not only is the Lord Jesus Christ God the creator, but he is the sustainer of everything that is. So in verse 17 we are told he is before all things and in him all things hold together or cohere. He is before all things pointing to his preexistence before the created order and in him all these things that he has created Cohere. J.B. Lightfoot in his, his famous, justly famous commentary on Colossians says, He impresses upon creation the unity and solidarity which make it a cosmos instead of a chaos. That's what Jesus does. Why do the atoms cohere? Why do the galaxies function? Uh, why does your body pump blood? Why do you take your next breath? It's because the creator of all things sustains what he has created. Now, 
the point of all of this is simply, is simply the wonder of it all, folks. This is the God who came down. This is the one born in Bethlehem. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. This is the one who came down. This is how great the condescension, the infinite God, assumes finite human nature. And we're told by Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians 4, In their case, speaking of those who are perishing, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The world out there cannot see unless the Holy Spirit opened the heart. They are blinded by the God of this age, and they cannot see that Christ indeed is the image of God. Unless, as Paul goes on to say in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And there is something for which I'm praying, and that is that during this season of the year, that someone here whose mind and heart and eyes are blinded to the reality of who Christ is, that the light would shine in. And you would embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. What a Christmas that would be for you. Second thing I want you to see in the text, that Christ is the head of the body, the church. Christ is the head of the body, the church. So we read in verse 18, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. So, Christ is God the creator of creation, and he is the creator of new creation as well. He is the head of his body, of the body of the church, and head here, of course, means sovereign. He is sovereign over his church. By the way, just a notice in passing, these are distinct metaphors in Paul. It's not a, a head in search of a torso, but it's Christ who is sovereign over the body, the church. They use a similar language. This is a very lofty thought in the similar language in Ephesians uh, chapter 1 when he speaks of Christ being seated at the right hand in heavenly places far above rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he is the beginning, the source of life, the firstborn from the dead. Again, emphasizing priority, sovereignty, dominion. Lightfoot says, his resurrection from the dead is his title to the headship of the church. My, that's good. My, that's good. His resurrection from the dead is his title to the headship of the church. You see it here in verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus Christ passed through death. Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now ye need not fear the grave. Jesus Christ was born to save. 
calls you one and calls you all to gain his everlasting hall. Christ was born to save. Christ was born to save. Your Savior passed through death. Now there's condescension. The creator of all assumed human nature and went to a cross. He passed through death and was raised on the third day. By the way, I want you to remember something. A short while before Paul wrote this, Jesus Christ hung on a cross, and Paul now addresses him as God. Paul hated Christ, persecuted the church, and now Paul bows before Christ in humble adoration. What accounts for this? There is only one thing that can account for this. Jesus Christ saw the risen. The Apostle Paul saw the risen Christ. He saw him and was called by him. And Paul goes on in this passage and he says, oh, look at it again. Look at verse 18. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That Christ might be preeminent over creation. He is preeminent over the church. He is preeminent over all things, over death, over life. In Possum, the text says, over everything, over all things, Christ is preeminent. And one day, my friend, even though the world does not presently acknowledge him, everyone will acknowledge his preeminence, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I suggest you do so now in faith. But in this rapid survey of this text, we see a third thing. Christ is the reconciler. Christ is the reconciler, verses 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In verse 9, I'm convinced he has in mind the incarnation of our Lord. It's speaking of his person. And he says the pleroma, the plenitude, the fullness of all of the divine being and attributes dwelt in him. It was pleased to dwell, and the word really means dwell permanently. We read in chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 9, just look over. For in him, that is to say in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is God of God. He did not cease to be God when he came but there was a perfect union of deity and humanity. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Listen to Bishop Lightfoot again. He is not only the chief manifestation of the divine nature, he exhausts the Godhead manifested. In him resides the totality of the divine powers and attributes. 100% God, 100% man. And that's why he can be, according to verse 20, the reconciler. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. His person, his work. He's the restorer of this fallen world. He brings harmony between heaven and earth. 
through his cross, through the blood of his cross. Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? It is only through the blood of his cross that we are reconciled. The baby born of the virgin in Bethlehem. Who was that little baby? God in the flesh. Who made peace through the blood of his cross. From sin and death he saves us. We just sang it. Through the blood of his cross. Now that's, as I say, a rapid survey of a text that deserves multiple sermons. But I ask you, is is there not some value in this rapid survey? Doesn't it take your breath away? Doesn't this portrait of Christ just leave you breathless? Behold your God. There, that little baby in Bethlehem of Judea. So let's draw out some implications and apply it in just a few ways. Let's begin by applying it this way. This is very lofty, is it not? H.C.G. Mole calls Paul the adoring theologian, and I hope that all of you here this morning are adoring Christians and adoring theologians. This staggers the mind. God of God, light of light, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. That's staggering. John Owen the Puritan said, the more sublime and glorious, the more inaccessible unto sense and reason the things are which we believe, the more are we changed into the image of God in the exercise of faith upon them. By which Owen simply means the more we as Christians dwell upon these lofty things, the more Christ-like we become. But this lofty Christ is the only Christ. There is no other. And if you have a different view of Christ, just a good teacher, for example, rather than God who became man who went to a cross, and you think you have grace because you believe in Jesus, but it's, but it's not this Jesus, then you have an imaginary Christ and you have an imaginary grace. And you need the real Christ, the Christ of the Bible. Not the Christ of the Gnostic heretics, not the Christ of men's imaginations now, This Christ, this lofty Christ who condescended is the only Christ there is. And you know what? He's enough. He's sufficient. He is more than sufficient. He can forgive you of all your sins no matter what those sins have been. Second thing, I think we should dwell for a moment upon the exclusivity of the gospel. Why did he come? John 18, 37, he says in front of Pilate, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. So when the question is asked, why don't you Christians just join hands with the religions of the world? You know the bumper sticker, coexist. Nothing more offensive to me than to see the cross 
there with these religious symbols. Just coexist. Just join hands together. Everything is going to be really good if all of you people could just join hands together. But you see, when this happens, Christianity is no longer Christianity. We no longer bear witness to the triune God, the one God in three persons, the only God who is. There is no cross, no resurrection, no exclusivity of the gospel, no grace, no freedom from wrath, no redemption from sin. No, we can't do that. No matter what comes, we must preach, we must testify to, we must believe, we must hold to this gospel we find in the New Testament. But then thirdly, I want you to dwell on this with me for a few moments, will you? Christ is preeminent. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in a few things, some things, most things, all things, everything, he might be preeminent. Now, I've been thinking about that this week. If he's preeminent, therefore, I should labor to seek his preeminence in my life. If Christ is head of the church, that is to say sovereign, then I must bow to his sovereignty. I have no right to try and determine things on my own. So what are the areas of your life in which you need to seek Christ's preeminence? Verse 16, for by him all things were created. Verse 17, he is before all things. Verse 18, that in all things he might be preeminent. Because you see, the universe is a Christocentric universe. And that demands a Christocentric life. Let me repeat it. A Christocentric universe demands a Christocentric life. Now, I read just recently that in the medieval period, when a vassal would come to his lord, um, a king or some higher noble, and he would pledge fealty, that he would take his hands and he would place his hands like this in the hands of the Lord and Master before whom he pledged his loyalty. Whereby, of course, he's saying, my hands are in your hands. You lead me where you want me to go. You determine how my hands are to perform. Now that is exactly what someone needs to do here this morning. By faith, you need to take your hands... And you need to come to the Lord Jesus and you need to say, I've sought my own way. I've wanted, I've wanted my own way in life. But now, Lord, by faith, I take my hands and I place them in yours. You direct me where you want me to go. You lead me where you want me to go. You put me where you want me to be. You use me as you would use me. I just yield. I just surrender. I just in faith believe. 
Because you see, the heretics degraded Christ by their heresy. May we not degrade Christ by our lives. He must grow upward in my esteem. That's what it means that he's preeminent. I must recognize it. He must grow upward in my esteem. I must grow downward. Christ's exaltation calls on me to self-abasement. A little story I love. Okay, this might mean more to me than it does to you. But I hope it means a lot to you. It means a lot to me because it's a preacher story. Charles Simeon, great preacher, uh, kind of the, the tail end of the great evangelical awakening in England, ministered at Trinity, Trinity Church in Cambridge, had a tremendous ministry. But in order to appreciate this, you have to recognize that when he first went to that church in Cambridge, he was rejected. Uh, the, the pews, the old box pews were locked so people couldn't come in. They had to put chairs out because people couldn't sit in the pews. On one occasion he came, but the door of the church was locked. He couldn't even get in to preach. People didn't want his ministry. He persevered, persevered, persevered. Brethren, he said to his ministry uh, colleagues, uh, something like this, we, we mustn't fear a little suffering. And he suffered, and he persevered, and God gave him a tremendous ministry throughout Cambridge, throughout England, Scotland. Tremendous ministry that has fruit to this day, by the way. Henry Martin, the missionary, in large measure, sent because of the support of Simeon. Martin, of course, went to Iran. I'll bet there's going to be fruit there from his ministry. I'm praying for it. So he's an old man now, Charles Simeon, and he's preaching... And his biographer says the soul-moving power of his prime of life was with him to the last. Many years ago, the late Dr. Halson, the dean of Chester, one of Simeon's latest hearers, gave me a vivid reminiscence of hearing Simeon. Trinity Church was crowded as usual, aisles as well as pews. The pews were not locked now. The text was Colossians 1.18. That in all things he might have the preeminence. One passage was written for every, for, forever on the listener's heart by the prophetic fire of the utterance as the old man seemed to rise and dilate under the impression of his master's glory. And Simeon concluded his sermon this way, that he might have the preeminence. And he will have it. And he must have it. And he shall have it. So I can see that old man perhaps coming slumped over, preaching in his pulpit. And he came to the end and he spoke of the preeminence of Christ. And he stood up erect. And he says, Christ is preeminent. So come to the foot of the cross. Be washed in Jesus' blood, the reconciler. Walk in faith and faithfulness. Give your life to him. Give Christ the preeminence he deserves, for he will have it, and he must have it, and he shall have it. I just can't reach the height of this text, but I sure love trying. So I thought of this hymn this week. I don't know if you know it. How shall I sing 
that majesty, which angels do admire. Let dust and dust and silence lie. Sing, sing, ye heavenly choir. Thousands of thousands stand around thy throne, O God most high. Ten thousand times ten thousand sound thy praise, but who am I? Thy brightness unto them appears, whilst I thy footsteps trace. A sound of God comes to my ears, but they behold thy face. They sing because thou art their son. Lord, send a beam on me. For where heaven is but once begun, there alleluias be. Enlightened with faith, lights my heart, inflame it with love's fire. Then shall I sing and bear a part with that celestial choir. I shall, I fear, be dark and cold with all my fire and light. Yet when thou dost accept their gold, Lord, treasure up my might. How great a being, Lord, is thine, which doth all being, beings keep. Thy knowledge is the only line to sound so vast a deep. Thou art a sea without a shore, a sun without a sphere. Thy time is now and evermore. Thy place is everywhere. And this majestic God, assumed human nature, was born in Bethlehem of Judea, obeyed the law we broke, shed his blood on a cross, and was raised on the third day. Who is this born in Bethlehem of Judea? The creator, the sustainer, the head, the reconciler that in all things he might have the preeminence. And he will have it. And he must have it. And he shall have it. Amen.